Great. So this is podcast number three of Building Realities, and it is my great pleasure to have Sarah Tico joining us. Uh, Sarah, I know from working in immersive tech in Brighton, and we've uh, met each other a couple of times. We sort of chewed the fat for an afternoon and felt like we had lots and lots more to talk about. And I knew a little bit about what Sarah does, but when I look into her background, she's uh, a very interesting and wide ranging work experience. So Sarah, I'm going to introduce you briefly as uh, founder of Hatsumi, producer of The Deep, currently healthcare leader at Immerse, and um, the one I didn't know about was Death Doula in Training, but we'll get on to that in a bit. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. Um, so anyway, welcome, the, the, the name of the, the podcast is Building New Realities, and of course, currently we are all in a new reality uh, you and i both have an interest in what a new reality looks like through immersive tech perhaps some exploring inwards how one is able through directional attention to build new realities but um for those listening to this podcast uh, in the future is the it's, uh, 6th of april 2020 and we are currently in lockdown from covid19 and uh, everyone is experiencing a new reality um so yeah sarah lovely to have you on the podcast oh thank you so much for having me it feels like yeah a very nice opportunity to just stop and reflect about what we're doing because it feels like especially working in virtual reality as well it just feels like more and more our entire realities, like you say, are being picked apart. Uh, and yeah, especially the last few days, I've been thinking about it in a very different way. I've been reading, a bit of an aside, but I've been reading a book uh, about Hugger, uh, the sort of Danish art of uh, sort of coziness. Oh, yes. And, uh, and it reminds me a lot of, of the overlap with, with our mutual interest in uh, healthcare and virtual reality. And a lot of it is around, you know, how influential your environment is about how you to how you feel, right? And uh, I think it's, it's only four percent of the Danish um, the Danish population do not ever use candles, and more than half use it almost every single day. But it's sort of about how you create these like lovely environments that that enhance well being. And I think when we're all stuck at home at the moment, it's been making me think about what reality you can build at home that makes all of this a bit more bearable as well so. yeah I think that's that's a really interesting point isn't it you know building a new reality actually is just tending to your internal thoughts and taking small amounts of time for yourself and your environments now we sort of coming at it from a slightly tech heavy angle of yeah we literally are going to build new environments um, for people to experience things that they can't easily experience in, re in real life but a new reality is simple as, as simple as making changes either to your daily environment or um, to your daily thought process. And you know, as we're all living at home at the moment because we're all on lockdown, my, my small habit, uh, because what, what, one of the things that annoys me at home is just when there's all shoes left in the hall. So I put up, you know, nice little um, shelves at the front door and I just go around picking up people's shoes rather than shouting at my daughter to put your shoes up I'm thinking well if I just pick them up for her that will get rid of the sort of the tension for me and maybe it will introduce a new habit for her so yeah I think this kind of lockdown environment is it's it's really it's really sort of forcing us or encouraging what I should say is encouraging us really to 
to look at our, our smaller habits. You know, in some ways, I, I feel this COVID-19 piece is Mother Nature giving us a bit of a yellow card. Um, you know, I've heard some yeah. descriptions of it as, um, yeah, we've been sent to our room without dinner and you can't watch TV for a week. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, very, it's a very small inconvenience compared to what bigger environmental change might look like and is uh, encouraging us to to all look at our actions. Um, I can only hope that some of it filters through to the sort of leadership angle of the, the country and the world. You know, one suspects it will, there'll be, everyone will be itching to get back to business as usual. So it's gonna be very interesting to see if it changes sort of organizational uh, culture and organizational mind shift. Yeah, because I think it will be, you know, big, big disasters or major events they they always leave a scar but usually they leave a scar on one specific place right um rather than i think this is such an interesting and unique case in that the whole world is going through this and so it's interesting to see how how collectively we're going to respond and 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 you know people are going to respond in in very different ways as well um but yeah, a few years ago, came across this really fantastic book by a. Uh, I'm talking all about the books today, um, clearly in lockdown and, and going through the, the library again. But um, a really amazing book by a writer called Rebecca Solnit um, called A Paradise Built in Hell. Oh, I'm going to make a note of that. Rebecca, how do you spell her surname? Uh, Solnit, S O L N I T. Scandinavian again. Is it Scand? Sorry? So she's Scandinavian? Uh, she is, she lives in California. Okay. So, and what was the name of the book? Uh, A Paradise Built in Hell. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's like a little bit that's added to it. Uh, an extraordinary, and the extraordinary, oh, God. Sorry, stumbling all over the podcast. Um, but it's and the extraordinary communities that arise in disaster. That's yeah. it. And so, so basically, she wrote this incredible book. I think like in the sort of early-ish two thousands, after um, after nine eleven, looking at all these sort of major disasters that have happened throughout history, and how within that it almost just levels out society. Suddenly, yeah. those hierarchies really disappear, and you're just trying to get everyone through it, right? Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, the kind of incredible altruism that, that results from it. Mm. And, uh, and I think hopefully we're seeing a, a lot of this already. Mm. Um, and just the way that people are connecting online and, again, through virtual reality as well. I think it's been really interesting to see how, what a huge shift there's been towards more social VR experiences happening, but also how people are just, you know, creating so many resources, an overwhelming amount of resources, but, you know, free online events to help parents homeschool their kids or, you know, just sharing information and knowledge as much as possible. And I really do hope that we are in a position where we can really take some of these learnings about, you know, how, how to support each other and the questions that, that it's really raised uh, and maybe think about how we can live differently. Mm. But I think, you know, the economic implications mean that there's a lot of quite scary things that mm. we're, we're not able to deal with just yet either.
Mm. Um, we're moving away from virtual reality a little bit, but you know, it's all very relevant. Oh, it's, it's all relevant, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think what's interesting in this case is, yeah, but there's this sort of war-type analogy, war-type footing, war-type mobilisation and mindset. But fortunately, we're not actually, at, countries aren't at war with each other, but there's this kind of mm. mindset and there'll need to be this healing mindset. But for once, we're not actually dropping bombs on each other or pointing fingers yet. So um, that, that is, is hugely encouraging. It's this kind of renaissance in thought and action that can come out of this slightly desperate test of testing time, but without the self-inflicted uh, suffering. Uh, yeah, we're said, always at war until there's a bigger, a bigger enemy. And so it's kind of, it feels a bit like fighting aliens a little bit, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? It's like when we do our team briefings in the morning, it's like, is everyone okay? Anyone ill? You know, and we sort of reflect on the, the strangeness and it's like, well, the aliens haven't landed yet. But, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's, so I'm interested to, to, to find out a bit more about your background. I know you've got this, the, obviously, specialism in health and my reading of it, or my understanding is it has a bit of a bearing on mental health, but what's your, what's your background? What brought you into what you do right now? Um... It was all a, a little bit accidental, as I guess most things t do tend to be. Um, I'd studied anthropology at university, and I think I always found like people and science and biology really interesting, as well as the sort of human elements as well. Um, and then ended up pursuing a career in the arts, surprisingly, after graduating. Um, my father had passed away, and I think it just made me realise that I really wanted to do a job that I loved and I'd started working in, in some art galleries and doing some volunteering and I really liked being able to be in environments where you could ask questions and, and really think about the world in a different way. But, um, but it wasn't until a few years later where I ended up sort of navigating the healthcare system and having to deal with quite a severe mental health crisis that had, had sort of arisen where I had like what's I guess now being described as a, a one-time psychotic episode that I just became so frustrated with the the healthcare system I mean you know it's fantastic god we're so lucky to have things like the NHS but I think just how how quickly we need to convey quite difficult to describe experiences I found incredibly hard and I felt very misunderstood um and People were very quick to diagnose, uh, to to prescribe quite strong antipsychotics, and I was like, I think I don't need this actually. Like, I, I feel all right now because the majority of this experience sort of happened when I was uh, alone on holiday, uh, and it was sort of coming back that I, I really came to terms with with what had really happened, and so. I, having worked in the arts, I became really interested in, in virtual reality as this uh, storytelling tool in this way of, you know, being able to su supposedly put, put you in the shoes of somebody else or, or be able to see the world through their eyes in one way or another. And I, I don't think, you know, you can ever really tru truly understand what it, what it is like to be someone, somebody else. But I love this idea of using virtual reality to to reveal these these different layers of, of reality that, that people experience every day and so that was sort of my, my journey into VR and, and yeah starting as a storytelling tool and then finding out all the different ways that it can be applied in, in healthcare from like pain management to physiotherapy and training and yeah like mental health therapies as, as well so that's sort of what, what initially sparked my curiosity and then it's been 
yeah, just meeting lots of interesting people and, and having like kind of fascinating opportunities. And in the mental health use of VR, because there's obviously a couple of strands there. There's sort of, you know, the work that goes on with um, like at Oxford VR where they're doing kind of clear phobia work. So it's, you know, put you in a room with here's a small spider, here's a big spider, here's a, a bus with people on. Um, you know, those seem to be quite practical um, testing grounds for people to work with their phobias or assumptions of certain scenarios. And then there's the slightly, let's call it abstract, let's call it subconscious um, type of world. I'm sure you've got more appropriate medical terms. Um, which of those sort of two worlds are you more attracted to in terms of working with VR and mental health? Um, I mean, I just find it all really fascinating. And I think what's so, um, and what I really love about VR is that it is, very interdisciplinary and I think that you can incorporate a lot of different ideas into one experience um, mm -hmm. and so I love this idea that yeah you, you can overcome you can you can develop strategies to overcome stressful environments stress, stressful situations but you can also sort of combine that with more relaxing experiences so for example I work on a, a project called deep um, so Deep, I first came across when I was a curator at the uh, Big Anxiety Festival, which is like an arts and mental health festival that was run with the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And it was the first VR experience I ever showed, and I've just been in love with it since. And it's a breath-controlled VR experience to help people learn meditation and, and how to manage anxiety. And so it was first developed by... Uh, an artist and then he was connected with the games for emotional and mental health lab uh, at Radboud University in the Netherlands and so what they've been doing is uh, as part of part of their research is developing these sort of exposure like experiences within the game to see how quickly people then are able to to self-regulate and, and calm themselves back down from moving from, from these sort of frightening environments to something that is, is much more calming. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's all of these different experiences coming together. It's yeah, how it can be used in yeah, exposure therapy, helping people with psychosis and, and agoraphobia like they're doing at Oxford VR to help people learn these sort of self-management tools. I think, yeah, just prov providing an escape or a really valuable learning experience being able to motivate people as well to want to continue engage with therapies because it's really boring sometimes, right? Doing these like repetitive things all this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I think also being able to to see yourself in, in a very different perspective as well, like the way Mel Slater has done with things like um, Freud me, where it's like this idea that you're. So what was that? Who was that person? Oh, it's called uh, Freud Me. It's by yeah. a researcher called Mel Slater and his company, uh, Virtual Body Works. Right. And um, so you're sit sitting opposite Sigmund Freud in this room and you're invited to tell him all of your problems. And right. then suddenly you bodies and, then su and you're Freud listening to yourself, giving you advice. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? This is it's this idea of Sol called Sol Solomon's Paradox, which Solomon's is... Paradox easier to give other people advice than it is yourself yes and that is so true isn't it and the advice we give to other people is normally very 
quite um, quite to the point. It's quite direct and it's quite clear. But when we try and work out our own way of taking on advice, well, personally speaking, I'm not sure this is a, a common human condition as you just pointed out by actually having a name. That you know, per, well, personally, I you know try and factor in way more factors. Whereas when you're talking to someone else, it's like you should do this. But actually, that voice is probably needs to be bounced back to ourselves. Yeah, but it's just so hard, isn't it? And, it, and yeah, you just there's so many other worries and concerns. But but to be able to create these these out of body experiences, which is so unique to VR, mm. I think that's a really really great example of how it can be used well. And they and they I think they trialed different versions of it. So they did Steve Jobs me and right. yeah, nice. Michelle Obama me. Right. Uh, and I, I don't know the results of it, but it'd, it'd be interesting to see how how the advice differs. Depend on depending on who you suddenly embody um, when you're giving yourself advice back. That sounds like a really neat um, solution to at least explore your own perception, because uh, I think sometimes our intuitive advice or intuitive opinion is kind of very straight and to the point. You know, I, I think the, the the tendency in the sort of tech space we live in might be to go oh yeah and then you could implement ai to analyze the voice it's like well actually you don't need to you just need to put your own voice and then sort of flip the pov um to hear it and that's that's uh, that's very interesting um so how does the deep and how does this deeper project you work on or is it a project you introduced to a festival uh so, so it's a project that I now work on. So at the time when I was a curator at the festival, then, um, then a professor had, had flagged it to me as a really interesting example of VR. And so I looked it up and, and just thought it was incredible, especially because it's an artist-led project that's gone through clinical trials. Mm. And I don't think that happens very often. Usually you have the, the academics on, on one side of the spectrum and the sort of artists on the other. But I love that it's, it was really beautiful and just an amazing experience that, that toured all of the film festivals. It went to um, Tribeca and South by Southwest uh, and all sorts. I found out last week, by the way, that Shia LaBeouf and Danny DeVito have tried Deep. <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> it completely made my, my life. I think that's <laughs> so brilliant. Uh, and apparently they enjoyed it a lot. But you know, the idea that something that is developed as an anxiety intervention could actually be part of a big film festival. Mm. I think it's really blurring the, the boundaries of what's possible. So anyway, so I showed it at the festival and I loved it. Like it's so, it was so enjoyable just being able to facilitate that, seeing people feeling a bit, you know, cautious and they're like, oh, I don't know what this VR thing is. Like I feel really silly in it and uncomfortable, but you know, working with, with the artists, Owen and Nikki to, to design a nice and, and safe environment for that. And, uh, and it was just something that I, I'd, I'd thought about a lot ever since. And then I did a research project last year um, with an organization called Nesta, investigating the role of the arts and creative practice in virtual reality for mental health. Mm. And so I was looking for uh, sort of research or, or people to, to speak to as part of this research. So I contacted them again. And we just had a really good chat. And it was so interesting finding more about the research that they had since done. And they've been working with uh, a full-time PhD student that, that's you know, done her entire uh, PhD on it. It's called, uh, she's called uh, Ioannika Verdinista. And she's just wonderful. Anyway, so we had this, this really great chat and I really in, enjoyed interviewing them. And then they, they got back to me a few months later and said, we're looking for a producer. Um, 
would you want to join us? So yeah, so I now work with them part time. Um, and I just, I just love the project and think it's, it's such a shining example of what VR and healthcare could be of, of these two worlds coming together and the scientific and the artistic perspective, both having equal value because the artistry of, of the experience is so much of, of what makes something effective. Um, so, and they're just a bunch of fun, interesting people. And I, and I feel like, you know, they're, they're curious about how you bring together. Uh, it's almost like not even interdisciplinary working anymore. I think it's almost anti-disciplinary, like this division between what is art and science, I think is starting to dissolve and actually realizing that those two things coming, coming together. And did you use this for sort of part of your own, let's call it treatment or own rehabilitation after you had um, your psychotic episode that kind of left you, uh, led you into this world? Um, I've, I used it during the festival. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'd self-prescribed it to myself because also at, at this stage then there are only so many uh, belts available. So with Deep then, yeah, they, they've hand-developed a biofeedback belt and so it's sort of measuring your, your slow breath and your sort of diaphragm expanding. That's what, what powers you through the experience. So I, I don't think VR really did have a... a a particularly big role in my own recovery it was more thinking about what I could turn into a VR experience and actually that creative process and having a good support network around me and exercising and having a routine and having therapy and all of those things I think really helped the most but I do think that that, that VR really does have a role in mental health recovery and I think we're living in an interesting moment where there's more and more research coming out and more examples of, of projects that can really help with that. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously entering forcefully uh, a moment now where kind of remote working is sort of leading the charge. Um, now, given the sort of enforced separation that we're also under, it would seem potentially just the, the remote sociability could be uh, an area that we'll need to explore, be, be explored. Uh, for example, my wife's sister and her husband are in quite serious lockdown because she had COVID lightly, he's had it very heavily, and obviously we've been talking to them a lot throughout it. And it's kind of got to the point where Mary would just like to be able to you know, go and see her sister and give her sister a hug. Um, now, obviously, when you're in VR, um, for those who, who have tried VR, have tried collaborative VR, which is an area we work on a lot of future visual, even though you're just represented as avatars, when you go to touch and two hands touch, it's like there is a, in my experience, there is a, a light filling in. You, mm -hmm. you feel more, you have a little bit more register on the, on the connected um, neurons within one's body than then you might do just from like screen detachment like this, uh, but obviously significantly less than if you meet in, in real life. But there is, it does up the connection ante a bit, but obviously on our society, we've been so focused on productivity, efficiency, remote work, does this allow you to make better decisions? But there could be this wave of um, remote social. I don't know what the correct term for it is. You know, remote work is quite clear. 
you know, and remote connection just sounds like you're trying to get an internet connection. But there's something mm. in this uh, you know, empathy time, being in a you know connection bubble, um, whatever it is, that um, could be explored further. And I think what will be explored further as as a relevant field that we we don't necessarily need to understand, but we just need to. Um, be, be aware that the, the sort of power of connection, the ability to connect can go further up the register when we're in an immersive space together. Mm. And there's so many different ways that you can facilitate that connection as well. Because there's, there's really simple things like Altspace and Mozilla Hubs uh, and a whole list of, of different things online. But I think, yeah, it's about how what kind of social environments are, are we creating and how can we adapt that to really enhance connection, I guess. Like, so, so for example, the other week, then um, a group of us were meant to be going to LA uh, for virtual medicine. I know That's that we fine. chatted about it as yeah. well. And, uh, and of course, with everything being canceled, we were really disappointed. And, um, and so, considering all of this about healthcare and VR, we were like, well, doesn't it just make sense to, to do this in person? There are so many conferences that are now being moved to VR. And so, um, so we thought, Let, let's, just, let's just give this a go. And, uh, and so it was somebody called Chuck Webster that already runs an event called Health Systems Chat on Altspace. Uh, and then VR Doctors, which is a really great Facebook group uh, that I really recommend. And my mate Rosie Collins, who runs the Fred Company, really cool organization that do great stuff around like mental health and fun and playfulness the fred company the fred company yeah it's named after her dog nice um they did a lot of work with uh the victims of grenfell actually and so it's really interesting that you know they've shared a lot about their learnings with how they've they've used vr to support people uh following quite traumatic events and so i think they're using a lot of that learning again now at the moment as well um but with, with this event then first of all it was great we put we basically put together a what was or could have been a day-long event in in probably like 12 hours we had everyone talk for like five minutes each and just summarize what they're doing you still got everything across pretty quickly and then you could ask people questions afterwards and it just felt like a very efficient way of running a conference anyway. But there was, um, oh God, this moment at the end that I think just, just really seemed to like exemplify why VR can really help with this human connection. It was all these people that had met online on the internet and I'd invited people from, you know, all over the world because you, you meet them online. You go, wow, what you're doing is really interesting. Let's just all meet in, in VR. And um, there's a really phenomenal woman called Kay Smith, um, who is a patient that is now in palliative care and, and has a series of conflicting conditions, which means that she can't use any form of pain management, including in surgery. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Wow. And so she self-prescribes virtual reality. Um, and she's an ex-scuba diver. So a lot of it is sort of scuba diving experiences and things that, that you know, take her back to to um, the life that she she used to have when she was younger. And, um, and she had connection issues and that's, you know, a, a big bloody pain in the ass, right? Uh, and that's the one thing you don't really have to worry about with um, 
real life conferences is you know your reality just glitching out and you know not being able to access the space um and so she ended up writing a, a sort of page of, of the speech that that she wanted to um share in there and chuck uh offered to to read it aloud and there was just and it was so emotional and so beautiful and you could just even though everyone in the room was muted you could you could see how how moved everyone was and and chuck had to really recollect himself at one moment uh or quite a few moments and then the, you you get all these kind of people that, that spam a little bit and there was someone that got on stage and, and i kind of removed them really quickly and and then there was a moment where you kind of went up to him and you could like put an arm around them mm, nice um, and it just felt like this really sort of lovely moment where oh. it did feel like you were able to like physically comfort someone um but also you could really see from his body language how he was he was physically responding to reading this this really powerful and heartbreaking story um and it just sort of underlined for everyone why we were doing this as well because i think that often patients are really left out of of the story but just being able to be in that same place as other people even if you can't see their their facial expressions but to hear their voice have some level of spatialized sound have that that body language and space to socialize is, is, is really important. I think it's been a lifeline for a lot of people um, during the lockdown. So do you feel that's really interesting? Because obviously, you know, VTech, there was a lot of excitement around that. A lot of people were very interested to, to meet. People have been making a lot of progress uh, over the last year. Did it feel like a number of, you know, effective discussions, um, conversations took place then in the way that you perhaps would at a normal conference did it feel like a, a great substitute what did you what did you feel like you missed it's never the same as as in person i think it's it's i think it's a good environment for introverts because you can get out very quickly um yeah it's never going to be the same as in person for sure but i think when you look at the cost benefit ratio of like for, for virtual medicine we were going to give up a whole week of our lives i think i was going to go for 10 days because you can't go to la and not like you know actually make the most of it right we were going to fly across the world like think of all the money and expense and time that you put into that and don't get me wrong i think it's extraordinarily important because it is all about those moments that you get to have proper conversations and develop relationships um, but I think a lot of this is, is asking questions about how much it is really necessary. Mm. But you're not looking people in the eye um, in, the, in the same way. But I think you are listening more mm. because at conferences, like it's really heartbreaking when you stand on stage and everyone's staring at their phone. Mm. And even if they're like tweeting about whatever you're saying, it's still, mm. you know, you're, they're not really listening. But I think, you know, with a VR headset on, you are unless you're trying really hard to be distracted, you, you do really have people's full attention. Um, and I think there's, yeah, something really interesting. I think there, there could be some really interesting developments with how you really create effective 
learning environment. And a lot of those conversations that you have conferences where you're meeting a high volume of people, you're all kind of having initial conversations. It's all, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're literally sort of digging in, chiseling away. And whilst you will get a better connection by looking someone in the eye, sometimes you don't need that because you're, you're having a lot of early conversations trying to establish whether there's interest. And, and for those kind of conversations, if you don't need the real look them in the eye type moment, you know, you probably need that moment when you're you know, going to sign a deal or you're actually hammering into the detail of like, okay, you said you can do this. You said you can do this. Um, so these kind of peripheral initial scouting information gathering conversations seem very well suited to VR and the saving you're going to make on time and money and all the other costs that we're seeing that, that, that seems like a, a logical fit straight away and very justifiable. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and also, yeah, for people that have access issues as well, if you do have a disability, and it's difficult to travel. Um, and I wonder if it could uh, maybe hinder some of the, the biases that people have mm. as well, because maybe if you're not, because we all make so many judgments based on what people look like. Mm. And I guess if everyone you know, you don't necessarily know what someone looks like, then maybe you may treat them in a better way. It's like, you know, the, 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 the whole halo effect thing that, that good looking people get, you know, treated better yeah. or, and, and all of those things, or, or, you know, people discriminating against people of color or. Mm. You know, yeah, great. So you, maybe that could. And you just have those initial conversations based on information rather than bias, rather, rather than if they're in a VIP section or all that other kind of stuff that gets in the way. And when you've established that there's a, a, a reason to follow up. Um, yeah, so, 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 so the, the, the opening intro is built on kind of pure information exchange rather than bias. Yeah, so that's... That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of somewhere between the efficiency of remote working and the sort of remote feel or the remote touch that we were talking about. So, you know, me, Miranda and I, Mary, my wife, were throwing around an idea for, you know, VR hug, you know, because she just really likes to go and hug her sister at the moment. You know, mm. it's a simple premise. Actually, all we've got to do is put, her in the, put them in the same space where they can go yeah. communicate. There's a great... Um startup called Mew, M-E-U, by uh, someone called Sarah Shaskes. Um, Is that M-E-U? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's really cool. So it's like you are conveying emotion through movement and you can send people virtual hugs. And so it's this idea that you have this avatar that you can adapt its... Uh, sort of how it looks it's all like very psychedelic it's very very much in that sort of realm but it's about how you can non-verbally convey information through through physical movement mm. and they've done lots of stuff around around hugs and and intimacy as well so i think that's a really lovely example um and there was a great book a few years ago as well by uh someone called peter rubin who was in the editor at the time for wired may still be there um and so yeah it was called future presence how virtual reality cha is changing human connection intimacy and the limits of ordinary life um and and so it, it runs through all these different ways that yeah it's really challenging our ideas of of intimacy um and it goes from uh, things like pornography 
and to to more social experiences to how you create trust with people virtually as well um but uh yeah it makes me think of this because sarah is now who, who does me is also doing a new project called extra sexy reality uh and, and this <laughs> is that that I'm really... x at the front it is indeed <laughs> <laughs> and uh and it's all about sort of trait like it's kind of like vr porn and i think that's something that we need to talk about more because and it's, i think it's something that we have talked about in the past as well which is that you know like who's really making money in VR at the moment? And I think unless you're doing are like they, hyper, are, hyper, hyper are, are, pornography, are pornographers making money in VR? Uh, I mean, they're probably making more money than everyone that's doing more sort of esoteric VR mental health stuff and, and trying to distribute it in, in clinical environments. I think we've, there's still a lot of hurdles to cross. But I think in terms of innovation and like money that that is poured into those things like it's always the sex industry right well it has and been today which is why i'm interested if it if it if it's translated thus far obviously it was a massive part of vhs taking off uh, i don't know any any stats i guess the barrier on all this is is again people having headsets yeah. but anyway the intimacy and the extra sexy reality brings us on to a, a, a topic that we've lightly discussed and i saw you doing a little announcement uh, on it which uh, was your involvement in vulvar <laughs> Tell us about oh, it. <laughs> um, it's a great name. Yeah. yeah, I mean, oh god, yeah. It's it, I, again. I didn't mean it to happen. I think this is this is a general theme in my career, which was just accidentally stumbling across things. But um, but yeah, I I I I read the book Future Presence, and so I I really enjoyed that anyway. And I think you know I've always had an interest in you know, alternative applications of, of VR and, and felt like I can't work in this industry and not investigate that area a bit. And so it was just over a year ago, I had like a Google Cardboard and was like, I'm going to watch some VR porn. And it was weird. Of course it was. Well, of course it was weird. It was actually quite classy. It was a bit like, it was a bit eyes wide shut. Mm -hmm. So I was this like guy lying down, having this experience with these three women in these beautiful Venetian masks. But, you know, you're sort of, again, like, like you were saying with, with the idea of touching hands, you're anticipating people touching you. And it's very weird anticipating these like beautiful women in Venetian masks touching my, my penis, which I, I don't have in reality. And, uh, Did your and brain fill of, in? <laughs> sorry? Did your brain fill in and go, and now I have a penis? Yeah, a bit. It's like... You know when you when you can see a ball like flying at your head or something and you're mm. kind of you're anticipating it hitting you before that's actually mm. happened. I'm sure there's a there's a, a better term around it. I mean I mean So your biological response the body transfer illusion, this idea that you are in a body that is not your own. What's um, that called? The body transfer illusion. Oh yeah. Um yeah, Mel Mel Slater, he did Freud me. He sort of really uh pioneered a lot of this research over, over the last 30 years and it's been interesting because whilst there's this idea that you're anticipating feeling like you are embodied in another body it's not just you, you can you can experience that between being a male or, or female or you know from, from different um, cultural backgrounds uh, but also they've, they've found that you can have this illusion of feeling like you're in another body that is 
non-human as well so they've done studies where if you are given the body of a spider in vr you will start to anticipate having legs over your your body as well so it's it's this idea that it's not fixed it sort of stems from this idea of, of the rubber hand illusion yeah i've tried that yeah it's it's uh, it's good yeah and bizarre and fascinating but um but, so you tried yeah. so this vr experience you you're seeing <laughs> Beautiful ladies, I imagine, wearing a Venetian mask. Your, your, your endorphins and various chemical reactions, your, your internal chemistry set started to, uh, to, to tingle. And, uh, and then what was, what was your, what did you think of the experience? I mean, sort of. I don't think I, I, I think I was more just curious than, than taking immediate pleasure in it, which is odd because I guess that, it's more immersive and so you'd expect that you would but I just remember thinking like all oh, this just feels so weird but um but what happened is I ended up meeting up with uh, Rosie Collins from the Frey Company and a series of other uh, women that, that work in VR and we all just realized we quite enjoyed each other's company and just hung out and had a few drinks and so I was like guys I watched VR porn the other day and I think that you should too so we all sat around and chatted about it and we were talking about the fact that you know men get between 98 and 99% of all investment and like may maybe I should just like can this whole VR mental health stuff and just start making porn and so I was like oh I call it Volvo VR and uh and we all sort of laughed about it and I, I I'd tell friends about it and I was like oh you know maybe one day I'll start a VR porn company and that way I can pay my rent uh and a bit easier and then for my birthday then then two different people bought me the domain domain names for the website <laughs> it's a sign <laughs> it's a sign yeah I have, to, I have to do it and uh and it actually is something that i, I have been really seriously thinking about because not not even just porn but sexual education and you know the fact that there's this really wide spectrum that everyone operates in from in terms of how you understand like about sexual health and consent and communication and you have you know back in school with the condoms on bananas and then you have porn and if you just showed those two different things to to aliens you'd be like there's no way that that's connected mm -hmm. but is there something that in the middle that you can do that is like interactive and educational that is made by and for women because as far as i can tell from my research there's a little bit of stuff made by women, but again, like the porn industry, it's all stuff that's made by and for men that's creating this unrealistic expectation mm. um, and is not help, helping anyone really. So, mm. ca so can you create something that sort of operates in this middle space where it is fun and interactive and has like real stories and is made with people in a, in a collaborative way? So, um, so yeah, so it's all kicked off. So there's there's three of us now involved. Um, a, a really amazing researcher and creative technologist called Indira Knight that worked very closely with Oxford VR, in fact, on their project. Um, so she's based at the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design, uh, which is part of the Royal College of Arts. Um, and so with a sort of, yeah, I've been scheming with her about it. And then a psychologist in the US called uh, Dr. Jessica Stone. Uh, who also runs a company called Virtual Sand Tray as well. Um, 
but yeah the idea is that we we kind of create different chapters it's a web vr experience so we're developing it as something that's always transmedia so if you don't have a vr headset you can still access all of the content as well and there's a different chapter exploring a different theme we partner with a sort of expert in that area but then also co-design each chapter with uh, a diverse group of women and understand like their stories like their struggles what they want to see in that and then we sort of release them one by one so you're going more for the the, the education piece around intimacy rather than uh let's call it uh, gratification kind of content um can't it be both could it be I, both i don't know Okay, I guess it anything could be anything. So I guess if it's if it's uh, if it's done well, I guess if I just think of um, you know porn and and you know sexual content, it's just a, it's kind of a pure gratification um, play. Also, there's a bit of fantasy, isn't there? And it's entertainment, it's taking you out of your uh, uh, immediate space and uh, and allowing you to be a voyeur and live in this other environment, but as opposed to the educating and like you say porn is very one-dimensional it's very male heavy it seems to be um, um, very male-led that you know what a male fantasy is is what happens it's it's you know it's all quite formulaic um, but the sort of education piece around intimacy you're almost perhaps trying to slow slow that down so you have I mean it, it's just it it's it seems a uh, it's a difficult. It's a difficult story to tell, or it's a tricky bit of story to tell. To how do you educate around intimacy and then ramp it up to, um, you know, almost. I'm going to call it almost a commoditized experience because when you purchase like porn, it's like I'm going to have 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, of an amazing roller coaster ride that's got these. Um, that has a sexual slant to it, so that's quite commodified. Whereas the other piece is. It's quite subtle, isn't it? It's quite nuanced. You're trying to open people up around um, exploration and connection. I look forward to trying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious because the thing is, you know, at this stage, first of all, yeah, I'm I'm actually quite reticent to start making porn. I'm not there yet, and I don't I don't even know what that would even look like if we're going to if we do even do things like 360 capture or if it would be something that we're sort of developing, you know, animating in, in, in VR. But yeah, f first of all, I do not feel ready for that. And I think that at this stage, whilst we've developed a really strong framework for how we want to develop things and make sure that we have sort of clinical advisors and supervisors that, that can oversee this from a, from a sexual health angle. So we're approaching, um, yeah, sexual health experts. If anyone is interested in being involved, please get in touch as well. Uh, Volvr.co.uk. Um, shameless plug. Uh, yeah, but, but I think the the whole point is, yeah. Whilst we've created this framework, we don't know what it's going to look like yet, and maybe that that there is like a, a porn section eventually. Mm. But I really want to tread this line very, very carefully, and I think to begin with, at least. I want to, we want to start with things that are educational and then maybe it will sort of feature into that and maybe there'll just be a section of the website that will be dedicated to that. But 
I think I'm just I'm mostly excited about this idea of of working with people to to make interactive things that are that do generate pleasure in one way or another be it that you're just playing this fun game or, or listening to stories and you know feeling like you are captivated by the experience and making it something that's painful and fun that we're not ashamed of because it's so weird when you think about how awkward people feel talking about it and like it makes me feel really awkward talking about it as well but it's such a a huge component of of everyone's lives and there are so many issues that come up with it around just confidence and communication and then you know the more extreme stuff like consent um and just how many sexual sexual disorders result from people's just you know anxiety around all of these things as well so i think if you can yeah make these things a bit more mainstream she says trying to do something in vr that isn't really that mainstream then yeah, hopefully it's a new approach to well, people. just the fact of launching vulva and sort of stating what your aims are is helping to influence the conversation. So that's a starting point, isn't it? Which brings me on to an interesting question. Like, what do you find are the greatest challenges in your in your field, in your chosen niche? Are they technical challenges? Are they human challenges? Um, well, there's always the obvious stuff around funding but that goes for anything right mm. um but i think especially in an area in a time where i think people really are excited about in, interdisciplinary collaborations when it comes to v vr funds it still feels like there's not so much of that and there are lots of funds that you apply for where it's like we're too sciencey for the art funds or too arty for the science funds yeah and so I think there needs to be new frameworks around that and, and making it easier to collaborate with academics as well, because it's really tough at the moment that you have to find the right academic, you know, schmooze them, make sure that we're all on the same page and, and we do want to do that thing together. Mm. But then when it comes to funding applications, it's a, it's a really long process where you're not getting paid for that. When you're a, it's a lot SME, of time. you're taking a big risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a lot of time. It's a second and job. It's a bit like raising money. It's, uh, it, yeah. it's a lot of your time. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? And then when it comes to things like IP as well, then that can be really challenging for the universities. And of course, they're, they, if they're helping to, to contribute to it, then they should own part of it. But I think that in terms of like fairness and the overheads that universities charge, it can be really, uh, it can really stand in the way of um, collaboration. Um, and then on the sort of bigger picture as well, it's like, how do we, what, there's, there's no real approval method for, for VR and healthcare apart from clinical studies, which are, again, big and expensive and in generally in favour of the academic institutions, when actually there's so many SMEs and artists and creatives that are coming up with great ideas that do want to validate them. But I think it's how do you create that, that clear pathway to doing that research and also bringing it to people that need it because there isn't currently yet uh, an NHS XR strategy and I think there needs to be in a clear pipeline from creation to actually delivering it to people and thinking about how to do that in a very safe uh, way. So if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare in the UK 
what what would you what would you do? Let's say you had like twenty million to spend and no red tape. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would start by there's a few VR pain management labs that are slowly in development. I'd love to create them, like give them money to be able to start doing doing research into exactly what VR is effective in pain management mm -hmm. and how and find a way that people can make it easier to openly share what they're doing and just, you know, create almost like a, a consortium, uh, which is something I am, I guess, technically working on, but I am working on, but just don't have all the, the 20 million behind. Mm -hmm. I'd love to start introducing VR into waiting rooms as well. And um, I think that's a really, like wonderful opportunity to use VR to help people in healthcare. So things like Deep for managing anxiety. And then uh, my company, Hatsumi, then we are developing a tool that enables you to uh, communicate uh, pain or mental health conditions using 3D drawing on a body. So finding ways of, of helping people non-verbally communicate that and to help speed up that, that communication time in a GP's office, because apparently on average you have about 11 seconds to convey your condition to a doctor before you're likely to be interrupted, because you only have that short period of time. So if you can, you know, use that, that, that time in the waiting room for people to, you know, manage their anxiety, but also really think about what is going on for them and, and how they can convey that, I think that's really effective as well. Um, and also maybe even just seeing how we can prescribe headsets to people that really need it, people that are you know, living in remote areas that are disabled, that, that need uh, support either through mental health therapies that could be delivered remotely through perhaps, you know, a sort of telemedicine social experience or physiotherapy as well. So helping people exercise as well. Um, and then just having, you know, a sort of headquarters for all of this, which is like a space where you do have all of that technology where the research can be undertaken having things like residencies and you know enabling people to take their research to somewhere where it can be validated because i think that everyone's just fighting this fight alone but if you can create a sort of central headquarters different places where, where things can be tested around the country but just make sure that it's accessible to to the people that, that need it most yeah i mean having a a, a national center of vr learning would be uh, would be amazing, and obviously, Immerse uh, are, are trying to sort of do that by feeding money uh, into existing funds and applications. Um, and I, I know that's something you're you're working with Immerse on on the healthcare side. So um, I know some of it's confidential at the moment, but uh, I, I, you know I've seen the Immerse reach out just this week. Obviously, with everything that's going down in lockdown, they um, they're, they're reaching out to VR companies, to Immerse companies, to see if we can come up with uh, with solutions. So uh, it feels like, you know, it feels like the UK is, is giving considerable uh, attention to the immersive space and trying to sort of, you know, help us along. So there's, there's lots of people we can talk to. Yeah. And I think that we are really lucky to have, you know, a, a healthcare system like we do. And so whilst there are so many countries that, that perhaps are, are much more ahead of us in deploying VR in healthcare, um, i.e. America, then it's incredibly fragmented and it's only really going to the people that can afford that. Mm. Um, rather than, I think that we have a really 
quite exciting opportunity here to you know do something that can really help everyone potentially mm. um and even the work that the bbc has already done with just making vr available in public li public libraries as well um and just yeah opening that access I i'd really like to see um yeah more trials of this being done in the future great well sarah thank you so much for your time where can people find out more about you where should they go and look for you link wise um and all the regular internet spaces uh, Twitter is at Sarah Tico, Sarah with an H and then T-I-C-H-O or uh, my website HatsumiVR.com um, and now VR.co.uk. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's not very many Sarah Ticos out there, so easy to, to reach out. But yeah, anyone that's interested, always happy to chat about any of the projects. Lovely. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and look forward to continuing our conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.